stand at 21. But why did you take so long to answer your name? He said, well, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, Joey. <laughs> so anyway, I'm rooting for the Eagles, just to say. <laughs> Since the Jags aren't in it, we, uh, all right. Now we get spiritual. Job, uh, Job 42. So good to see all of you, by the way. I enjoyed my time in Texas. Thank you for your prayers. My, my grandson uh, sends his love. Uh, he turned one last week. He says, Papa, now, if you have not heard, that's the big news in Texas. He knows how to say Papa. I understand my son did a good job filling in for us, Pastor DJ, and we appreciate him doing that. Yeah. Pastor T, we're glad he's feeling better. He was actually supposed to preach in the first service, but because of his health issues he was going through, he couldn't do it. So, uh, But we appreciate all of our staff. They're great, great staff. Uh, Job chapter 42. We are at the end of the story. This is lesson seven of seven. We're going to finish out our series on Job now. And this uh, we are calling simply the happily ever after part. Remember we said when we began this series that it kind of reads a little bit like a fairy tale. There was a man in the land of Uz. Thus we termed our series, Once Upon a Time in the Land of Uz. And then you come to the end of the chapter, the end of the book, and you find that they all lived happily ever after. But man, there were some trying times in between, wasn't there? We've dealt with some of that and the trials that he had and the difficulties that he faced. So uh, uh, today we want to conclude this and whoever's working the mic for me back here, it's a little bit hot I think. I'm getting a little bit of whatever that is, reverb or whatever. Can you hear me okay? But I haven't got loud yet. All right, so Job chapter 42. Let's read first, okay? Uh, I'm going to skip over the first few verses because this is uh, what we've already dealt with in our series. This is Job um, answering the Lord and then the Lord answering Job back. And verse 6, the Bible says, Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He said earlier in verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of, of, my, of the ear, but now my eyes see you. So we believe that God has appeared in some fashion to Job and he's actually seen him okay so we believe that that's what's happened he's begun to talk to him now is this a theophany an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ um, I do not know it does appear to be such where he does appear throughout the Old Testament uh, as an angel of the Lord However, verse 7 picks up uh, our lesson today. So look at verse 7. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what was or what is right, as my servant Job has. At the beginning of the book... God is speaking with Satan. Satan has had to come up and stand before God to give an account. And he says to him, have you considered my servant Job? Remember that? And now at the end of the book, he's saying the same thing. He's saying my servant Job did it this way. So again, almost like bookends of the story, have you considered Job? what he has done. Now, let's keep reading. Now, therefore, God said, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. 
And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, and my servant Job has. Here again, my servant Job has. So consider Job is basically what God is saying here. Very interesting text where he tells them, I want you to go and make a sacrifice and have Job pay, uh, pray on your behalf. And we'll come back to that thought in just a minute. Verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them for the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Very interesting. Some believe that had he not prayed for his friends the way God had instructed him to, he would not have had the restoration. You know, it's hard sometimes to pray for those who have kind of been mean to you. Would you agree? Jesus talked about praying for those who despitefully use you. That's not, it's easy to pray for your friends, isn't it? We're not going to incriminate ourselves. <laughs> I'm remaining silent, pastor. I'm not saying, okay, I'm just saying. All right. But it's difficult to pray for those who have mistreated us. So the Bible says that uh, indeed uh, the Lord, verse 10, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him <coughs> in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Now let me pause a moment. Someone might say, okay, I remember the numbers from the beginning of the, the book. And it does show that he has been given twice as much as he had previously, except the number of children. He had 10 children at the beginning, and he has 10 children here. So one particular commentator has pointed out that in all, he has had 20 children. And so let us not miss that part as we're trying to figure all this stuff out. So he gives to him, restores to him children. Uh, three of them are daughters. It is mentioned in verse 14. Or verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. Verse 14, and he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hoppuck. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. That's a neat little uh, verse of scripture that talks about how uh, Job took care of his daughters as well. Verse 16, after this Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days, lived happily ever after. Now let me do this with you if I may. Um, I'd like to approach this chapter by saying to you that God gives us three things in this chapter as it closes the book. Okay, the first thing he gives us, if you want to go ahead and write this down, is the blueprint for handling troubles. The blueprint for handling troubles. And let me pause a moment with you and let's pray together, okay? Father, we come to you today and God, we do recognize that each time we come to your house and your presence and we open up your word, that we are indeed in need 
of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray now, God, that you will do a great work among us, that you'll teach us from your word the things that we need to know. God, that you'll make the application for us and that we will leave today rejoicing in the message that we've heard. And Lord, maybe there is somebody here that needs to receive Christ as their Savior. I pray, Lord, they'd see Jesus in all of this and the testimony of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So he gives us the blueprint for handling troubles. A very interesting thing here. Job is about uh, 200 years old when he passes. Some believe that. That might help us understand where he was in the timeline. We have placed him somewhere around the time of Jacob. Uh, maybe the life of Joseph. The early stages of the bondage in Egypt. Uh, he does not have the word of God that he can go back to and look at like you and I can. When we want to know what God has to say, we go to the word of God and we verify. So God appears to him and uh, gives him uh, the, uh, his word. And, and here we find, if we were to summarize the book of Job as far as a blueprint, have you considered my servant Job? This is what God asks over and over. At the very end, he basically uses him again. Have you noticed how Job has handled this? I think there are at least three parts to this blueprint. And I want to give you those, those three parts if you want to fill them in on your study sheet. And I do appreciate those who have handed all that out and prepared that for you and uh, makes it a little easier for us. I think sometimes if you hear something, you only remember it so long, but if you hear it and then write it down, it will stay with you a lot longer. Plus, you can go back and study it out a little bit more. And some of our people take excellent notes. So I've seen some of your notes, and they're better than what I preach from. So uh, uh, it, it, I just appreciate so much that, uh, that you do. So, so consider Job. First of all, there is the examination. Job does an examination. He examines both his person and his purpose. Would you agree with me? Those of you that remember the book of Job, and maybe you've been with us throughout our series, when all these trials started happening, Job started asking the inevitable question that all of us ask when trials come, and that is what? Why? Why? Now his friends show up on the scene and they offer for him an answer to why, but they offer the wrong answer. They say it's because of sin in your life. But Job said, wait, I've examined myself and I don't see, I don't understand what you're saying. I've tried to walk uprightly and indeed God's testimony of Job was that he was one that avoided evil. Eschewed is the word that uh, is used in the Old Testament. Uh, I mean the, uh, the Old English and when you read that people say, bless you. And uh, so, but in the, in, in, he's avoided evil, uh, eschewed evil and say, thank you. And uh, just wondering if you're listening. So, um, so we know that he avoided that. And so he, he said, I've examined myself and I've come up with, I can't come up with, I've asked God to help me with this and I really can't come up with anything that says he's chastening me. Uh, and then he examines the purpose. Now the purpose becomes known throughout the book for us who read it, but not until the end of the book does Job really begin to understand that it's all about bringing glory to God. I've heard people say various things over the years about their purpose on, on earth. People say, well, it was my calling, my purpose to do this, to do that. I want you to know that regardless of what your career is, regardless of how you feed your family, your purpose, if you are a born-again believer, exists in one simple thought, and that is to bring glory to God in all that you do. That is our purpose. And so here we see an examination that leads to that. Now the Bible encourages us to examine ourselves. Matthew chapter 7, in part of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. 
For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I like that. Jesus is saying, listen, you want to use this measuring stick? Then it's going to be used on you. Whatever you use will be used back on you. Blessed are the merciful, he said in one occasion, because they will receive mercy. You want mercy? Then give mercy. If you're the kind of individual that holds people to the letter of the law and you're one of those that really picks people apart and you happen to be, and I'm talking to all the people online, not you in this church. <laughs> but if you, if you know some, if you know, I'm sorry to all the people online, but um, if you are, uh, if you're that kind of person, I would say you probably live a frustrated life because everybody else holds you to the same letter. God sees to it. If you're a gracious person and a forgiving person, chances are, as that kind of a person, that, that, that others uh, give you the same. Because what measuring stick you use, it will be used with you as well. Verse 3, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Some have used the envisioned, the envisioned uh, thought of a toothpick and a telephone pole. We're busy trying to get the toothpick out of our brother and sister's eye and we got this telephone pole sticking out of ours and, and, uh, and, and that's a pretty good analogy to think about. And the truth is, Jesus says this, uh, he said in verse 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye and Jesus actually used the word hypocrite. That's not too popular in today's world, is it? Wasn't popular then either, by the way. I don't think anybody likes to be called that. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You take care of the telephone pole you got out there, and, and the speck you can help with later on. And most of the time I have found in my own life that it takes me a long time to get rid of that telephone pole. And by the time I try, I'm working on that, I don't have a whole lot of time to deal with the speck in my brother's eye. Am I, am I right? You understand what I'm saying? All right, so examine yourself. Secondly, there is the endurance. And when we use the phrase endurance, when we referred to Job, obviously we call that the patience of Job. Maybe somebody has used that phrase in your life and they've said to you, remember the patience of Job, the endurance of Job. Job said in Job 14, verse number 1, Man who is born of woman is few days and full of trouble. Job is saying life is hard. I know life is hard. And because it's hard, we need to learn to endure. We cannot expect the blessings of God all the time. Earlier he said to his wife, who said, just curse God and die. He said, should we take the good without the bad? He's saying, look, I'm a realist in that there is bad in this world. It rains on the just and the unjust, the scriptures tell us. And then last of all, we have this thought of exaltation. So the blueprint is examination, endurance, and then there's exaltation. Job uh, makes the statement uh, that I know my Redeemer lives. Job 19 verse 25. I know my Redeemer lives. And should he slay me, I will still serve him and turn to him and love him and praise him. That's the emphasis of the book of Job. Is that our emphasis in our life? That's the blueprint for handling troubles, trials and our difficulty. Start with examination. Endure for the purpose that God has set. It's not so much an answer to why it has occurred, but an answer to how, God, can you use this in my life? That's how Job began to understand it. And then exaltation. Exalt Jesus 
in the situation you're in. Is there a scripture concerning that? 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm glad you asked. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That's always an interesting connection to me when I read it in the scripture. How can you rejoice when you're being grieved by trials? Only if you understand how God can use it. Can I get an amen? That's the only way. Otherwise, we, we start, and again, I'm speaking to the people online. We start feeling sorry for ourselves. We start thinking, you know what? I served God and then this happened to me and something's wrong and woe is me. And, and Job did not have that. And so the Bible says, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found, here it is, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's the end result of how we handle our trials that really matters. So God, let us be faithful at the end. Let us, let us be found faithful to your praise and to your honor. So we have a blueprint here for us to consider. Secondly, the second thing God gives us, and I find this interesting, so bear with me for a moment as I talk about it. You want to fill it in in your blanks. The blood for handling transgression. The blood for handling transgression. Notice what God does. After he has spoken to Job, he turns his attention to one of Job's friends. But his conversation is not just about that one friend, it's about all of his friends. And then God gives instruction for them. Let me begin by rereading something we read a few moments ago in um, verse number 7. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer for yourselves a burnt offering. God said, you haven't done what is right and this is how you can get right now listen carefully to what I'm about to say for years now people have been saying that America is now in what is called a post-Christian era or a post-Christian world how many of you have heard that okay how many of you don't believe in raising your hand in church so you won't <laughs> you won't respond go ahead and try it once just lift your hand just go ahead go ahead doesn't hurt at all, does it? Just kind of wave it around a little, praise it. All right. Doesn't hurt. Some of you be lifting them tonight, boy. You'll be, all right, I'm just saying. Super Bowl, by the way. Okay, all right. Where was I? I totally lost where I was. God said, it's not right now. You, you've heard that we're in this post-Christian, but do you, you may be surprised at this. I don't know, or maybe you have heard it. We are not in a post-Christian world right now. We are actually now in a post-post-Christian world. The generation that was post-Christian has yielded back now to a generation that is after it. It is a post-post-Christian. Let me explain the difference. In the post-Christian world, we had the generation that came on the scene that said this, there are no rights and wrongs. It was said a different way in, in humanity class, and that was there are no absolutes. That generation said, there are no absolutes. There are no rights and there are no wrongs. So the generation that came up behind them, the post-post culture now, here's what they've determined. Since there were no absolutes, whatever I say is absolute. Whatever I think is right. If I think it, it's right. 
So what happens is you get into this little debate. Somebody like me comes on the scene as a preacher and they say, oh, I don't agree with that because I feel differently. Well, okay, if I've shared with you my opinion, you have every right to feel differently. If I have shared with you God's opinion, you have no right to feel differently. None. Because God is the author of what is right and what is wrong. We live in a world today, a post-post-Christian era, that has a, has a little trouble with something called propriety. I'm not trying to get on to anybody, but let me, let me just say this because I think it's important we observe it. Since whatever I decide is right is right, then it does not matter what the social standards of accepted moral practices are. Because those are old school. So we do things today that before years ago we did not do. For instance, it's rare today to ever see a younger person get up and give their seat to an elderly person. It's rare today to see a man open a door for a lady or to yield. It's rare today to find any problem with people wearing ball caps either in church or in restaurants. It did not used to be that way. You say, but, but those things are not biblical things. No, you're absolutely right. They were things that were considered uh, uh, propriety matters. That, that a standard of moral practices is what was practiced and what was done. It was a matter of considering other people and therefore behaving certain ways that were more consistent with other-mindedness. Now we're in a state where whatever I do is right. So don't tell me what I do is wrong. I wasn't expecting too big of an amen, but a little faint one would have been nice. <laughs> Can you mutter one for me? Amen. 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 <laughs> Just write it down even. That'll do. <laughs> write it down. Hold it up. That's all you got to do. <laughs> Propriety. So who determined that it was blood that would take care of our transgression? It was God. God determined it. God said, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. The Holy Spirit comes on the scene and he convicts us. Conviction is when he tells us, hey, there's some things in your life you need to take care of. Another not very popular word in today's world is the word sin. And the Holy Spirit comes on the scene and he'll tell you when you've done something you shouldn't do. Because sin can only be committed if there is a right. Amen? And if there are no rights, sin cannot be committed. And if whatever you do is right, you never sin. But if God is the standard of right, then we recognize sin. And when we recognize sin, he leads us as to how to get it right. And I love that about God. The difference between conviction and guilt, or may I say it this way, the difference between what God does in bringing conviction and what Satan does in bringing guilt is Satan's guilt never offers a way to solve the problem. But God's conviction always offers a way to solve the problem. And he said, since he's the one that was wronged, blood is going to be the cost. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. All through the Old Testament, we see the practice of sacrifice. They all pointed toward one, the Lord Jesus. Perhaps the most vivid example is found in Exodus chapter 12, during what was called the Passover. Uh, the first one that took place when God said this, verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, 
I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Passover lamb was to be slain, the blood was to be placed on the door, and when God came by, the penalty of death would not be assessed where the blood had been applied. That is the perfect picture of Jesus, who John the Baptist looked at and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood. May I use an illustration with you for a moment? Okay. Let's go down the road in our minds for just a moment to the Harley dealership. Can I get an amen? Amen. All our motorcycle enthusiasts. Amen. Let's look at the Road King, the 2018 Road King. Can I get another amen? On there somewhere there may be a price. And it's going to start somewhere in the area of 20 grand. Did you know that? Some of you knew that. Some of you might have one. If you ever want to loan it to anybody, let me know. Okay, so um, 20 grand for a road king. Now, now let's imagine for a moment that you go down there with the post-post-Christian attitude. For instance, let me say that uh, we look at, at salvation and we say, you know, one person, what they think about how to get to heaven is just as right as what another person thinks. And we don't necessarily have to have the blood applied. The Lord Jesus, that doesn't have to take place because what I think is right and what you think is right and we're all right, we're all headed to the same place. So let's just try this same philosophy at the Harley dealership. Let's go in there. Let's look at that bike. Let's, let's, let's then turn to the salesperson and say, I'm ready now to deal. I brought with me a bag full of broccoli. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worth less. <laughs> so, uh, I brought... <laughs> I'm sorry, you pray for me. I brought with me a bag of broccoli and I'd like to buy that bike. And since I am of the post-post-Christian culture, what I offer you should be sufficient. It should be right. Now that person is going to probably laugh at you. They may ask you to leave their store. So you argue with them a little while. Would you do that? And prove your point. That, that who was it that established the price of that bike? That you might even ask them that question. And they might say something like this. Well, I certainly didn't. I'm just the salesperson. I just put the tag on it. Somebody higher up the chain. They're the ones that set the price on that thing. I didn't do that. Now, if you want to talk to price, you want to talk price, you have to talk to somebody else because I didn't do it. I'm just reporting the price. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me say to you that you and I did not determine that it would be the blood. God determined it would be the blood. That only through the blood of Jesus could we get forgiveness of our sin. Only through the blood can forgiveness come. That is the only way. There is nothing else you can offer. So let's bring a different bag then since you wouldn't accept the broccoli. Let's bring a bag full of our good works. Which actually in the eyes of God worth about as much as broccoli is to me. Okay? I'm just saying. <laughs> Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. It cannot do anything to purchase your salvation, to purchase your forgiveness of sin. It cannot. It cannot. Now, I don't know if there are motorcycles in heaven. I do know that they're in the Bible because the Bible says that David's triumph was heard throughout the land. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry. First John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. For the whole world. It's 
Only through the blood of Jesus do we have forgiveness of our sin. Last of all, let me talk about the blessing. Can I do that with you? Number three, the blessing for handling the truth. The blessing for handling the truth. Now, this, this chapter may actually propose a bit of a problem for us. And let me explain why. If you are familiar with the story, and again, if you've been with us through the series, you know that the great majority of this story is the conversations between Job's friends and Job. And they all believe basically the same philosophy. And it is a faulty philosophy. And their philosophy is, if you do good, you will be blessed. If you do not do good, then you will be chastened. That's their philosophy. But doesn't it look a little bit like that now at the end of the book? How do we reconcile this? Job has endured. Job has been faithful. Job has not been without sin. He has been confronted about it and he has repented over it. Early in chapter 42 he does that. So how do we explain the blessings? Can I share this with you? And I feel like God just laid this on my heart earlier when I was studying this chapter and preparing to talk to you. I think there's a bit of an encapsulating view of man and his journey with God in the book of Job. We could even say it's a bit of a microcosm of the race of mankind. When we start out in the book, he is enjoying the blessings and fellowship with God. Am I right? Which is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden when God made man. Then some trials entered in and some difficulties entered in. Now while we could not point to certain sins that Job did, we know that the idea here is that through the process, he did accuse God during this whole thing. So we know that sin did occur, but the trials did not come because of it. Still, nonetheless, let us understand the, the whole picture of humanity. At the beginning, there was blessing. And then because of difficulties, their sin did occur, which brought the need for a savior. So God stepped up on the scene and he said, this is what I will require. I will requi require the blood. And only through the blood can there be forgiveness. So God actually brings forth the first blood when he kills the animals and takes from them the skins to cover Adam and Eve. And from that day forward in the Old Testament, you see repeatedly sacrifice, sacrifice, all pointing to Jesus. You go over in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews and it clearly says that. The blood of goats and bulls was offered to point you to Jesus. So God said the solution is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now what has to happen is you have to pray and ask Jesus for forgiveness. Don't we see that in chapter 42 where Job prays and he even prays for his friends. Job becomes kind of an intercessor, sort of a Jesus type for this moment. Because just as Jesus came seeking to save the lost, so Job now begins to intercede for his friends, that they might be right with God. Then we have this. After a period of suffering in this world, man is a few days and full of trouble, we have blessings. For some of us, those blessings are when we get to heaven.
Can I share something with you? God has not promised you abundance. He has promised you no lack. Now this is a very important point and I hope even though I'm getting near the end of the sermon you're not zoning out on me going back to the Harley dealership. Some of you now are flipping through your phones. I see, I know. Looking for that electric glide or whatever it was. The road king is the best. But anyway, okay. So uh, you're, uh, don't zone out on me yet. And so, so the idea here is this, that God has promised us no lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The word literally means lack. I shall not lack. Even in the, in the story of the manna, when God gave the manna, it was all about no lack. It wasn't about an abundance. So let us establish this. Let us establish that obedience produces the promise of God that we will not have a lack. If God goes beyond that and blesses with abundance, it is purely the grace of God that he has done that by. And we should praise him and thank him for it. We should be of grateful hearts for all he has done for us. When we lived in Australia... About an hour's drive from where we lived, we lived in a southwestern suburb of Sydney. We were there serving the Lord as missionaries and a pastor. And You could drive from where we lived about an hour's drive to the coast in a little town called Wollongong. Any of you ever been there? Just, just your pastor's wife. All right. And as you drive there, you go up into these mountains and then you come out of the mountains and you see this in an area called Bulli Pass. It is one of the most beautiful sights. It was breathtaking. The picture does not do it justice. But they have a little lookout there that you can stop and take this exact photo. And we have pictures of us standing there in front of the little railing. And it drops way down to the ocean. And it's a gorgeous sight. The Pacific Ocean is gorgeous down there, man. It's, and again, the picture does not do it justice. But when I think about some of the most beautiful sights I've seen, this thing kind of stands out. I remember driving through and all you see is trees and you're in these mountains and then all of a sudden you come out and around this corner and there it is. Boom. The beauty of this place. Maybe if we were exchanging photos, you might show us a picture that really stands out in your mind. Something that was gorgeous. I have no pictures of heaven that I can show you. As a matter of fact, I find in the Word of God that even with the most imaginative mind, we cannot understand the beauty of it. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Who love him. Maybe you have to wait until heaven for the blessings. Or maybe God has gone beyond anything we could ever imagine or think in his grace toward you and you are already enjoying great blessings from God. I do not know. I know Paul said it this way to young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. May I pause a moment because Paul said life is like a fight. It's like enduring a race. Were you expecting something different? Chances are we were. We got saved. We thought, you know, the fight is over now. No, no, no. We thought there wouldn't be any need to endure anymore. No, not the case. Paul said, I have 
fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, he said, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you're here today without Jesus as your Savior, let me explain this very, very simply. Let me go back for a minute to the Harley dealership. <laughs> and let's say that you knew that your friend was looking at that bike and they didn't have the money and the broccoli didn't work and you just walked in there with your checkbook and you sat down at the counter and you wrote out the check for the full price. And the salesperson calls you up and says, hey, somebody was just in here and gave me your name and paid for that bike. Said you could come pick it up. And you say something like, I will be right there. <laughs> Do you know that Jesus paid it all? He paid it all. But someone had to pay it. It wasn't simply forgiven, it was paid for in full. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know him, you should ask him to be your savior. The price has been paid. If you do know him, you should praise him every single day for the grace he has bestowed on you and the blessings that await you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we ask you to bless this time. And Lord, we call this an invitation time because we invite people to make decisions based on what they've heard. And maybe there's a person here today that needs to ask Jesus to be their Savior. And so God, I pray that they'd make that decision today. That they would not put it off. I'm reminded in this text that we read, Lord, how you said to the friends of Job, you said, Now, now therefore, do this. I'm reminded that in the scriptures you have told us that today is the accepted time. Let us not put it off. Let us not wait, Lord. I pray your Holy Spirit would draw and bring people to know you as their Savior.